welcome to episode 176 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. For the podcast this week, we'll discuss the recent announcement that the world's first baby was born from a new procedure using the DNA of three people. So this is a baby with uh, not one, not two, but three Parents, so puts a new spin on menage a trois, John. Yes, for sure. I'm not sure that that's what the French were thinking of when they coined that. So, Dr. John Zhang from the New Hope for, uh, New Hope Fertility Clinic in New York led the team that uh, attempted and and succeeded with this mitochondrial transfer procedure. So it basically replaced faulty DNA in uh, the mother's egg with healthy DNA from a second woman. And so the baby goes on to inherit genes from two mothers and one father. And this procedure prevents certain diseases, which can be debilitating and even fatal, uh, uh, mito- uh, and specifically uh, mitochondrial-related uh, uh, genetic diseases from being passed on to the children. And so there are a few uh, children each year who are, who are bo- uh, born with these faults in their mitochondrial DNA, uh, which can cause uh, all sorts of problems. So this type of, pr- of procedure is legalized in the United Kingdom, but there is no um, other laws on the books that, that expressly uh, enable this type of procedure to happen in other countries. The team that... that uh, completed the procedure was U.S. based, but they did all the work in Mexico, which uh, you know, which didn't have you know any particular rules in place, and and therefore I think that raised a few eyebrows uh, in the scientific community. So first, let's uh, just get general impressions, and then we'll dig into some of the uh, uh, pretty large ethical and uh, scientific issues that this raises. I mean, it doesn't you know. Uh, uh, you know, completely uh, um, compose all of the, all of these uh, potential problems in, in, into one thing, but it certainly raises the issues. So, so let's start with general impressions, Dirk. Yeah, you know, it's uh, to me, it's um, it's superficially more significant than it is in reality. And so, what I mean by that is, I mean for a long time, we've we've taken an egg from a different woman and. Um, you know, plant a sperm from a father and put it in, put it in the 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 wife of the father as the host mother for an egg that she didn't produce. Or we're taking sperm from another man, putting it into an egg of the mother from a, someone other than her her husband. And of course, marriage is not a prerequisite for any of these things. But um, you know, now it's taking essentially the the egg and taking part of it out from a genetic perspective and replacing it with something else. So. Um, it seems um, newer, scarier, maybe, but it's really not that different. I mean, it's really making making a decision based on the the viability of the biological material of one of the parents, um, and and making a, an alteration um, for for the viability or the health of of a baby. So. In and of itself, I mean, it's dealing at the genetic level as opposed to the the sort of um, substitution of an egg or, or a sperm cell, which makes it different. But it's 
it's pretty similar from from an outcome perspective. It's um, where where this becomes more compelling is the slippery slope problem because it's it's easy to sit back and say, oh yeah, you know, we don't want to have this child born with this congenital um, problem. We want it to be born healthy. Like most people are going to nod their heads with that and say, yeah, that makes sense. You know, making that replacement okay, but. The path isn't that long to, you know, the super, the super man, the super mensch model where you're not replacing, you know, for, to avoid um, some disease or some condition, you're replacing to enhance, you're replacing to um, go and, and not just get healthy, but get healthy superstar, right? Um, and that's, I think, I think that's where it becomes more interesting. And Certainly, this technology is is on a path to to allow that to happen. Even though, in in a con- in the sort of concrete sense that we imagine it, uh, probably not able to happen today. Yeah, I I tend to uh, agree with you know the things you were you were just saying. The the designer babies, right, is mm-hmm. is sort of the the term given to the scenario of the you know the Ubermensch or or people who are, um, at least if, if they're not superhuman, then they've been uh, given selected traits. And I think that's a question that makes a lot of people nervous and for, for a good reason. What's the good reason? When you say it makes people nervous for good reason, explain that more. I'm interested in your, your ethical take on it. Sure. Yeah. So, so of course, one of the, one of the reasons is uh, uh, obviously creating uh, a, a certain type of person that that might receive uh, societal approval. So so you can think about uh, certain traits that are um, more pleasurable to look at or are, are more likely to fit into some societal mold. And I, I think that's probably where most of the concerns come from. And, you know, secondly, there there's a huge question that comes along with you know, sort of the affordability or accessibility of these options. So, so if you're able to change your DNA to make you more competitive, smarter, faster, better, right? But that's only accessible to uh, the ultra elite. Um, then, then you know, it raises the question that uh, I believe it was uh, the maybe, maybe it was the time machine where where H.G. Uh, Wells had the uh, the fantasy of two human strains that developed totally uh, differently, you know, one that lived underground and one one that lived above ground and, you know, sort of drastically um, uh, transferring this uh, uh, this societal um, uh, framework and, and and making it something that you know changed the direction of humanity. So so I think those those are like ethically those those are the things that jump out to me. I'm sure there are all sorts of gradations of that, and some of that seems a little bit far fetched. I don't know, Dirk. What's your uh, what's your thoughts on that? I definitely understand your your framing on it, and I understand where it comes from. I. I wonder if it's um, if it's sort of a red herring, though. What I mean by that is we were having a conversation, um, myself and a couple a couple other people in the studio, um, all of us, were having the conversation about Trump's tax returns, the four of us, um, and and the fact that if you look at over all of all of human history, there's always been an elite, 
um, I mean, always is, is too absolute, but by and large, in civilization, there's, there's haves and there's have-nots. And that's been the case, whether it's been a democracy, whether it's been a, a hereditary monarchy, whether it's been communism, regardless of the, the social structure, there is a small group that has a vast majority of the wealth and power that tends to propagate generation over generation over generation, um, whether it be because uh, you know, it's supposedly um, by divine right or whether it's because you just have a shit ton of money that you keep passing down to the, to the following generations. So uh, to me, if, if we're concerned about it being, well, the elite are going to use this and their children are going to be more powerful, more successful, more set up, it's already the case. It's just manifesting in different ways. Now it's just they have the billions, millions of dollars that they pass down, which gives their children ginormous advantages that sets them up to to um, more likely be in charge, um, this is just a different different flavor of that. So not that that is necessarily to advocate for or excuse it, but it's, it's, it, I don't know that it's such a different state of affairs than we already have in the world. Like the fact is there is a power elite in, in virtually every organized um, uh, manifestation of civilization as far back as recorded history goes, and that power elite generally tends to stay in the play gen- place generation over generation. One of the things that's remarkable um, about the experience in the United States of America, where we are, is that unlike um, the the European countries where where many of us um, came from originally, it's 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 much easier to go from having nothing to make it for yourself and to get into that elite at one level or another, right? Um, and so the question is, would this make it harder? Would, would the, the sort of promise of America of I have nothing, but I'm going to work hard and be um, ingenious and, and make something for myself that starts to move me into a place of power and could move my family into a place of power, uh, do the, the hurdles of designer babies and uh, technology create a, a system that is less uh, penetrable by, by the lower classes? And uh, I think it may, but um, I think there's a lot of unknowns too, so I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting breakdown and, uh, re- you know, relating that to our, our current societal uh, structures. So, Another question that that this raised for me really was uh, about governmental involvement in sort of regulating these technologies and uh, the idea that there would be, you know, some kind of guiding principles that we might come to as a country that could codified in, in that way. Now, very specifically, you know, the United Kingdom has, you know, allowed uh, this technology via um, their legal system, and and we haven't gotten around to it yet uh, in the United States, and and because of that, the the operating team on this decided that they were going to go to Mexico, which you know presumably has has looser regulations around this, doesn't necessarily have an FDA. There's no presumption about it. They do have significantly right. uh, looser. So, so I think that also raises a question about the advance of technology and how that's handled from, from an international standpoint, both for sort of making sure that uh, the technological outcomes are, uh, you know, sort of not as risky or at least done in a controlled way. 
Um, and I think this is true not just of uh, genomic-related uh, emerging technologies, but, you know, a number of uh, other technologies that we see coming, you know, whether it be synthetic biology or, or even uh, robotics, right? So I don't know that there's a clear answer about how government should approach getting involved in this discussion, but I think there's needs to be a greater sense of urgency, in particular on the on the biotech side. And I'm just lumping all of this together under uh, uh, biological uh, type technologies. But but my feeling is that over the past 18 months, we've seen, you know, an extraordinary number of advances and, you know, sort of news headlines. Some may be just for effect, but certainly the technology is starting to, you know, run at a full sprint. And I feel like regulation or at least discussion in that area is at best at, at, at a walk um, and, and nowhere near approaching what we need. Yeah, I, I mean, look, business is always way, way ahead of, of legislation on this stuff. There's, there's no question about it. Um, way ahead. So um, the government's going to be really slow, really slow to catch up. You know, something I was thinking about as I was reflecting on what we've talked about previously, as well as some of the things that you were just saying is, um, you know, I, I don't know that this technology is all that different from things that we take for granted now. What I mean by that is, the wealthy now take their children and put them in private schools. They take them and put them in schools that have a demonstrably, um, that are demonstrably better than the public schools that everyone else is in, right? So what is more impactful on the outcome of a child as they're advancing? Is it more impactful that they get the, the, the super smart genes or is it more impactful that they get the private schooling, right? I think it's, it's well within the realm of possibility that the environmental and network benefits of the existing old school infrastructure that the money buys actually is the thing that should be more intimidating and frightening to the have-nots in terms of the advantages that the children are getting. It's just that the designer baby aspect of it is the sort of sci-fi, it's not here yet, it's a little bit scary, it's easier to, to feel fear toward. Um, but I, I, I suspect that the, the very analog, very old school advantages that the money of the power elite provide are, are really putting in um, uh, harder to overcome obstacles uh, for the rest of us ultimately, at least certainly in the short term until that technology is super perfected and is creating more holistic, you know, uber people. Right. And, and, and I think perhaps, you know, part of the point is, you know, this is another technology that money can buy, right? Yeah. So you have the, the technologies that are resident in the frameworks that you described, whether they be private schools or certain ways of investing or having a whole bunch of lawyers and accountants to, you know, manufacture your tax returns so that, you know, it, it doesn't look like you own any money for years and years. Um, those, those are all technologies of a kind. Um, you know, accounting and math, or, you know, some early technologies, right, and, yeah. and school systems as well. So uh, it's not surprising that a, you know, advanced technology such as this could also be lumped into, you know, uh, being advantageous for uh, the elite. I, I guess, you know, the question always is when a new technology comes along, you know, who does it benefit? You know, what is it for? And, uh, you, you know, uh, at least in the United States, there's this egalitarian outlook that, 
you know, these things should be accessible uh, to everybody when, you know, in fact, they are they are not. So so those are part, you know, some of the issues that we'll struggle with uh, as these technologies come to market, especially uh, the genomic ones. I think we're just at the very beginning of that. Definitely. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to the digitallife.com. That's just one L in the digital life and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody. So it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening or afterward, if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at D Niemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. So that's it for episode 176 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time. 